Lord Jesus, we worship you and the Father. We worship your holy name this morning. Forever you are glorified. And may that be true in every moment of our lives. We are here to focus on you, to put the spotlight on you. Lord, remove me from this equation as we open our Bibles. Speak through me. May people find you and see you. May they not hear my voice. May they hear your voice. Draw us closer to you, that our fellowship may be with you, as our fellowship is with one another. And all God's people said, Amen. Take a seat, get your Bibles out, turn to John chapter 4. One of the verses we'll be looking at is in John chapter 4, is verse 24, where it talks about God being spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Last week we talked about um, unacceptable worship. We looked at four different forms of or styles of unacceptable worship. But I want to talk about something that just came out this past week, on Thursday of last week, so a few days ago. There's a new survey that came out from Lifeway Research. And it, in it, you find what you might expect from our uh, wayward culture in America today. For example, 60% of U.S. adults believe that religious beliefs are a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. Highlighting what we talked about in Sunday school, truth is now personal. Over half of U.S. adults, 53%, say sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. And 46% of Americans believe that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior is not relevant to today. But what I found unique about the results of this survey, which is why I'm opening with it, and the only reason why I am opening with it, was the Americans' view of worship. I've never seen anything like this before. And so this is what it found, three points. 66%, so that is two-thirds of Americans, believe that worshiping alone or within one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 66%. In 2020... 58% of respondents agreed with that statement. So that was right before, right during the pandemic. In 2014, only 52% agreed with that statement. So in 2014, 52, now today, in 2022, 66% of Americans. We just worship alone, and that's a valid replacement for fellowship. So what this survey tells me is that there are a lot of people in the church who are worshiping God in an unacceptable manner, as we learned last week. We, you, all of us, cannot worship the true God our way. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't accept that worship. And his words to us are crystal clear on our need for fellowship, Hebrews 10.25. We are not to forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. And the only acceptable form of worship to God is to worship the true God his way. And that includes corporate worship. 
Now, last week we looked at four different forms of unacceptable worship. For the sake of time, I won't go over those. You can watch it online. But this week, we're going to start to look at what is called acceptable worship. In order to worship acceptably, you need to know what is unacceptable, and you need to know what is acceptable. And so our journey this morning begins in John chapter 4, where we will start talking about acceptable worship. So turn to John chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. In verses 20 to 24, acceptable worship. The story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Verse 3, he left Judea, meaning Jesus and the disciples, and went away into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. We're going to stop right there, those first two verses, verses 3 and 4. Now, when you read these two verses, you find out that Jesus is on his way from Judea to Galilee. Let me help you out here. And he passes through uh, Samaria. And what might seem as simply geographical information, in those two verses, it's actually quite profound. Now, I know you probably can't see this. It's as big as I could get it. But you get the idea here. Here is Judea, and here is Samaria. And what you're going to find out in a moment here. Right around here, I think it says, is, yes, Jerusalem right here. Right below it is Bethany. Now, who lived in Bethany? Martha and Mary and Lazarus, okay? And so Jesus would go from Jerusalem to Bethany on his last week here on earth. So you have Judea, you have Samaria, okay? Right here is Sychar. This is where the story takes place. There's a well there. This is where Jesus is in this story. And he meets that Samaritan woman, Okay? And so what you're going to notice is, this is obviously a rough terrain, okay? And Galilee is way up here. Now, when the Israelite, when the nation of Israel, it split after King Solomon. Do you remember that? It split after King Solomon. Ten tribes went north, okay, which would be up here, okay? And two tribes went south, down here. And all was right located right about here. So south and then north. So you can see that. The south became known as Judah. Obviously in Judea. And the north as Israel. They were no longer all Israel. Now one of those kings in the northern kingdoms is Omri. And if you look at 1 Kings 16, he identified Samaria as the capital city of Israel. And eventually the word Samaria extended from the capital city to the whole region. So it all became known as Samaria. Because again, you can see right here, this is like, Israel is so small. But this is the uh, region that Omri eventually said this whole region here is what? Samaria. Okay? See that? But in 722 BC, the Assyrian nation captured the northern kingdom and the ten tribes. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. And as was the custom, what would they do? Well, the Syrians, like everybody else, would take everybody into captivity, but a few people from the ten tribes, namely the poor, the widows, the orphans, the people that would be a burden to society. They left them behind. And eventually, into this district came Babylonians. And they intermingled with these remaining Jews, And guess what they brought with them? Their pagan religion and beliefs. 
And over time, the remaining Jews marry the Babylonians and then lose their racial purity. And this was a gross crime in the eyes of Orthodox Jews. We would say if you go back to the 60s, someone in the South, a black and a white, black man and a white woman or whatever, you know, marrying. You just didn't do that. That was wrong, okay? So she did an Orthodox Jew for a, a, a Gentile and a Jew to marry. And so as a result, from that time forward, Samaritans became known as half-breeds. Half Jewish, half Gentile. So they were a second-class citizen. Okay? Now when Judah comes back from captivity, and Judah is where? <laughs> this is the southern region, the ten tribes. This is Judah down here. So the two tribes, when they come back from captivity, where can you read about that? Nehemiah, exactly. <laughs> and what do they do? They rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. And while rebuilding the wall, guess who comes down from the north to help them? The Samaritans. They try to help them. But because they weren't racially pure, the Samaritan help was rejected. And so the Samaritans then tried to stop what Nehemiah and his uh, group were doing. And it was led by, do you remember this? Sambalat. He was the enemy of Nehemiah. And so whatever bitterness existed between the ten northern tribes and two southern tribes going back years before all this, it only got deeper because of this incident when, when the southern tribes tried to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Now to make matters worse, a renegade Jew by the name of Manasseh married the daughter of Sambalat, and guess what he did? He went up to Samaria on Mount Gerizim and built a temple for the worship of the Samaritans. So here's right where he was, right around in here is where he, this is the well and so on. He leaves this area here and he goes up here and he builds this temple. Okay, now there was a temple where? In Jerusalem, and now there's one in um, at Mount Gerizim. And it's for the, a temple for the worship of the Samaritan Jews. Since they couldn't be a part of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, they would worship God in their own temple. Okay? Now, did God tell them to build this temple? No. So what are they doing? They're going to worship God their way, and it's going to be unacceptable worship to God. The other problem with the Samaritans is they only accepted the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they had an incomplete understanding of God. And as a result of intermingling with Babylonians, they ended up inventing a, a bizarre form of their own religion, a mixture of Judaism and paganism. And so this rivalry had gone on for about 500 years, folks, between Samaritans and Jews. And Jesus walks into this, and he talks, of all things, to a woman, which Jewish men don't talk to women, much less a half-breed Samaritan woman. I'm not going to go into the details of the, of the it's a whole separate sermon. But anyways, I just want you to know that Jesus is dealing with attitudes that are bitter and are deep-seated. Okay? Now, since we're talking about worship, let's look at verse 20 of chapter 4. Jesus gets her attention, and she talks about worship because she wants to worship, which is what the people did. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, 
And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she asked a question, where do I go to worship? And this makes sense. Because remember, I taught you that God has created a place for worship for his people. Where was it? The tabernacle and then the temple. And there was a place that they went to to worship. Okay? She wants to know, where do I go worship then? I could see you're a prophet. Where do I go? Mount Gerizim to worship, or do I go to Jerusalem to worship? And look at Jesus' answer. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I want you to understand what Jesus is, is, is saying here. Okay? The way you and I and this woman understand worship, he says, must be abandoned. Because you thought that you worshipped at a place. In other words, what he's saying is this, another way of putting it. She's saying, where do I go? Do I go to Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans have their temple, or do I go to Jerusalem, where the Jews have their temple? And Jesus is about to totally wreck her understanding of worship. But the point is, is that the way that, that, that you and I have understood worship and the way she, this lady understands worship, it must be abandoned if it's going to be acceptable to God. Look at verse 22 now. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And just by the way, this is the most informative text in the Gospels on the subject of worship. It's right here. And it, ironically enough, it begins with a rejection of the external forms of worship. You don't worship in this mountain or Jerusalem. The location doesn't matter. That's that's external. Okay. It also means he's getting rid of He's talking about abandoning animal sacrifices, the burning of incense, all the festivals that you attend, all the rituals you go through. He's rejecting that. He is saying that that is unacceptable worship, and it must be rejected. It must be abandoned. Well, why? Well, for two reasons. Look at the verse. One is by his death, Jesus was about to usher in a new covenant that replaced the demands of the old covenant. Okay? Look at what he says. It's really kind of already in there. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is. His arrival announces that the end of all that form of worship. Okay? And he's going to introduce, and he's already introduced, the new covenant that's going to replace the old covenant. So by his death, Jesus is about to usher in a new covenant that replaced the demands of the old covenant. The second reason is, not long after this conversation with this Samaritan woman, let's say, because this is early in Jesus' life, let's say he was 30 years old, 40 years from this conversation in 70 A.D., the Romans come, and they're going to end the Jewish rebellion that started in 66 A.D. and completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple that was built, rebuilt by, 
Nehemiah and his people. So after that, there is no more temple worship. There has never been any more temple worship since then. No more animal sacrifices. That is all completely stopped. But here's the thing that I didn't know, that maybe you didn't know. It didn't just end in Jerusalem. The Romans then went up to Samaria, where their temple had already been destroyed, I think, in 125 or 129 B.C. They still had priests. They were still going through all the rituals and everything. And the Romans arrived at Mount Gerizim. They take out their swords, and they slaughtered thousands of Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. And they brought it into that worship as well. And so for this woman and for us, I mean, here is Jesus' message. True worship doesn't demand a place or a ritual or a sacrifice. True worship has always been about loving and honoring God from the heart. You worship the true God, his way, with the right attitude the right motive from the heart. And so I want you to understand really what's happening here at the death of Jesus Christ. I want to put this up here for you. Remember this illustration before, this picture? This was the the tabernacle, which eventually was built into a temple. But this is the holy place. This is the Holy of Holies. A curtain separated the two. Remember that? This little light here is supposed to be the, the Shekinah glory or the light of God. And he would come and rest in the Ark of the Covenant Okay? And they, yeah. But there was, once a year, the high priest would go in here and offer a sacrifice. He would pour blood or sprinkle blood on it. But this was, you know, the Holy of Holies, this was the holy place. You got that? What happened, though, when Jesus, at Jesus' death on the cross? Okay? The veil was what? Torn in two, exactly. So the symbol that that temple, the Holy of Holies, really what happened when it was torn from top to bottom? Do we understand that that was a symbol of the end of the entire Old Testament system of external, ceremonial, symbolic worship? Do you understand at that moment God's saying there are no more places of worship where he used to be sought and found? There's no more priesthood and altars and sacrifices and vestments and incense. Okay? This is where some churches, some denominations miss this point. They have, all, they have incense and they still burn incense and they have the robes and all that stuff. Okay? All the rituals you go through. That's, not, that's unacceptable worship to God. That is gone. The new has come, okay? He's also saying here to this lady, whether it's the theologically deficient worship of the Samaritans, or, or they, and in Jerusalem by the time of Jesus, when they were worshiping Jesus at the, worshiping God at the temple, was it true worship or was it apostate worship? It was apostate worship. Remember, they were selling money in the temple area. They were not, you know, they were, they were, the Pharisees were hypocritical leaders, whether it's this deficient worship of the Samaritan Jews or the apostate worship of the Jews in Jerusalem, he was saying all of that passes away. It must be abandoned. In its place is a new temple, a new priesthood. Who is the new temple and the new priesthood? The believer in Jesus Christ. 
your body is a temple, feel free to worship. Now, this means that you can now worship God anywhere at any time. Let's look again, verses 22 and 24. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Because the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, they had a deficient and incomplete understanding of God. That's why Jesus said what he said. And this affected their worship. They worship what they do not know. Is that acceptable worship to God? No. Verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. We know what Jesus is referring to in the phrase an hour is coming and now is. That's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the introduction of the new covenant style of worship. But what is acceptable worship to God? Because Jesus says the Father seeks what? People who worship him in spirit and truth. And so he gives us a clue in verse 24 what he considers acceptable worship. Worship him in spirit and truth. But he also tells us, and this is where I want you to, if you want to start to take notes, you can start doing it now. He mentions the word father, I think three times in this passage. He calls himself a father. God as a father relates in, it refers to intimacy or relationship. Okay? So it means our worship of him is personal. So acceptable worship is personal worship of him, amongst other things. But here's the thing. In the New Testament, whenever God is discussed as Father, did you know this? It is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. About 70 times you read something like this. Remember this? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You check it out. You'll see it's, it's, it's God's presented as a Father, always in context to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's presented as the Father of the Son, and the Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you worship God as Spirit, you're going to worship him also as Father. Specifically, though, as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So when you think of the term Father, we think of God as our loving, personal Father. And, and that's how I think of God and how I thought of God as a Father for many years. And so I worship God as a loving Father. And that is correct. But that is not what is being discussed here in this passage. Okay? Now in John chapter 4. Let me show you what it means to worship God the Father. When Jesus says Father, the emphasis is on the nature or oneness of nature or the sameness of essence as he, the Son, is to the Father. So, for example, after claiming to do the work of the Father, this is what people said about him. For this reason, the Jews tried to harden to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was what? Even calling God his own Father. What? Make himself equal with God. He was claiming to be God. Okay, look here. He who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So the word Father there is used in the context of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus calls God Father, it's not 
our father that he has in mind. It's his father. And that is a statement of his deity. He's claiming to be God. Now, why is this distinction important to our worship? Because there are people who say they worship God and claim that God is spirit everywhere present and that God is their father. Who wouldn't want to have a loving heavenly father, right? I worship God the Father. But if they deny the deity of Jesus Christ, i.e. that Jesus is essentially the same as God the Father, that worship is unacceptable. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons deny the deity of Jesus Christ yet claim to worship God the Father, which they do, that's a lie. Is that acceptable or unacceptable worship? It is unacceptable worship, exactly. Because God is none other than the one who is the same with Jesus. You can never worship God acceptably unless you worship God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself God. Now, let's talk about God is spirit. Okay? This refers to his nature. The Father refers to his relationship, intimacy. God's spirit refers to the nature, who he is. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'm not going to have you go there, but in verse 11 and 12, we read this. This is when, when God had appeared to the people on the mountain, in the, in the fire and in the, in the cloud and everything. It says, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, Darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. Now, if you go to verse 15. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horb in the midst of the fire. And he goes on and talks about not making any graven images. But the point is, is that they saw no form. Because God is what? Spirit. Exactly. So to worship God as spirit means we don't reduce him to any graven image we may create. But it also means that since God is spirit, he is not bound to any place or time. He is omnipresent everywhere all the time. Which is why it says here, can a man hide himself in hiding places, so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. He is everywhere. You are never alone. He is everywhere. So to worship God in spirit means also we can worship him anywhere and any time. That means that worship is not limited to a particular time on Sunday morning. Worship is a way of life. It's a way of life. Every living, breathing moment of life, we live in the presence of God. And this was a in stark contrast to the old form of worship. Because it was limited to a particular place in a particular time. This is why it says, in him we live and move and have our being. Therefore, at all times, guess what? Worship is fitting because we're in the presence of God. God is everywhere at all times. 
and therefore to be worshipped everywhere at all times. Let's talk about another part of worshiping God in spirit. You can't separate the two, and that is God's holiness. And I want you to see this morning that it's important for us to worship the God who was revealed as a spirit in terms of how he's revealed in Scripture. Perhaps the one word that sums up his nature is holy. He is holy and to be worshipped as holy. And by holiness, I'm referring to his separate nature. He's, he's, he's unique. He's different from us. And the psalmist captures this point just bluntly and, and so easily. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his what? Holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So how do we worship God as spirit in regards to his holiness? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah goes to worship the Lord, and he has his vision. God's revealed as he really is. And remember, the seraphim are worshiping God for, the, for his holiness, and, and God's holiness brings out this reaction in Isaiah. Do you remember this? Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So in comparison to God, Isaiah can't see any goodness in himself. He is undone. It literally means he is being torn apart. He is perishing under an overwhelming fear in the presence of God. Well, why? Because he's now seen God as he is, and God is, first and foremost, holy. In the New Testament, Peter has the same reaction when he sees God as he really is. Remember this story? Jesus tells Peter to cast his net one more time to catch fish. Peter reluctantly obeys, and they bring in so many fish that the nets were breaking. And what was his response? Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He cannot stand to be in the presence of such holiness. Okay? And again, all Peter could see was what? His sinfulness. When confronted with the reality of a holy God, he has to ask Jesus to leave. And so the true worshiper, the one who offers acceptable worship to God, it's going to come broken and contrite over his sinfulness, and he's going to continually confess his sin. That means his holiness also demands that I worship him out of fear and reverence and awe. I mean, think of our worship of God this way if God is a spirit, and is everywhere at all times. He is to be worshipped everywhere and at all times. If he is a holy as a spirit, which he is, he's a holy spirit, then he is to be worshipped in the beauty of holiness, and that means we live our lives with a sense of fear. Because we know that God has every right to discipline our unholiness. This is another reason why we must prepare ourselves to worship. We can't just live a life of sin Monday through Saturday then enter the church on Sunday and think you're going to be able to worship the Lord in an acceptable manner. 
So I want to close this sermon with verses from Hebrews. They hope ties last week and this morning's sermon together. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Remember, I I share with you that last week, the reason why you were saved wasn't just to not go to hell, but the Father seeking people who are going to worship him. You were saved to be a worshiper. Okay? Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read these to you. The writer says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... How much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and watch. And so worship God, what? Acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, what does it mean that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken? If you are a Christian, you received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's what it means. It's for a Christian, only Christians. Only believers and followers of Jesus Christ receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. By this I mean you have entered into the eternal kingdom of the living Lord Jesus Christ. But watch this. There's a time coming, the text tells us, and it's in the future, when God is going to shake heaven and earth. Now what does that look like? What does the Bible tell us about this? Well, this is what it tells us about it right here. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, look, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and what will happen? The powers of heaven will be shaken. Okay? So Jesus is talking to believers who receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, it will not be affected by this cataclysmic event. Okay? Everything will be shaken, and eventually what will happen is what? The new heaven and a new earth will come. That's the shaking. But go look at back to Hebrews 12. Since we are believers, okay, here is our response. What does verse 28 and 29 say of Hebrews 12? Let us be thankful, and so worship God, what? Acceptably, with reverence and in awe, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. So we respond to have received this unshakable kingdom with graciousness and thanksgiving to God who has made us worshipers by worshiping God acceptably. And let us worship God in an acceptable manner. And what is an acceptable manner of worship? What does it say? With reverence and awe. And that comes from a fear. My son, the writer says in Proverbs, you know, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. We don't like talking about fearing God, 
We talk about loving God. He's a friend, right? But it says if you're going to worship him, you worship him in, out of, in fear, out of reverence and all. Why? Why do we have to worship him that way? Because our God is a consuming fire. When he came down from the mountain, when he came down from heaven and was on the top of that mountain, what was there? Why was there smoke? Because there was fire. He is a consuming fire. And so I looked for a song on, the, on YouTube, a worship song, Consuming Fire. You can find it, okay? But it tames God down to be a consuming fire that burns away all sin, as if you're baptizing the, the Holy Spirit in with fire. It doesn't ever talk about a reference God as a consuming fire in this sense, where it's like, get away from me. You are so different from me. I'm scared to death of you. But that's exactly what Job's response was. When he saw God for who he was, a man holier than probably any of us in his, his, his discipline and commitment and devotion to God, when he saw God and who he was, what did he say? I repent in dust and ashes. So you want to worship God acceptably, you worship him out of reverence and awe, in a, in, in, in a brokenness, and in, in, in out of a fear. We must not remember what happened. We must remember what happened to Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. They were probably drunk when they offered that strange fire, that, that incense the wrong way. And what happened? They were consumed by fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Because of the possibility of a holy God disciplining or chasing us, we worship him in fear, in reverence, in awe. Now here's the thing. But since God is so gracious, do we always experience his discipline for our sin? No, we do not. Therefore, it leads us to worship him with praise and thanksgiving flowing from our hearts because he is not treating us as we deserve. Therefore, it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. So, what is acceptable worship? Well, God as Father means we worship God relationally. But we also worship God as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship God and Jesus in the fullness of their deity. God as Spirit means we worship God anywhere, anytime. Therefore, worship becomes a way of life. If you are not worshiping him throughout the day and throughout the week, that's not acceptable to him. Worship him anywhere all the time. Not don't limit to this 20 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever, on a Sunday. And this is longer, so the font is smaller. God's holiness means that he is holy as spirit. He is to be worshiped in the beauty of his holiness. That means we worship him with a sense of fear and reverence and awe and a spirit of brokenness over our sinful condition because God has every right to discipline us for unholiness. But because God's grace often holds back his discipline, we worship him with praise and thanksgiving. Now you'll notice a trend in all the songs that we sing, Right? I mean, the one, one of the songs that we sang is right, 10,000 Reasons, Worship His 
holy name, okay? But we really don't understand what it means for God to be holy, right? Most of the songs that come out today are about God as our friend, God helping me, and that certainly does happen. But the Bible teaches us that our worship is to give back to God. We are to run away from, abandon all unacceptable forms of worship and worship him his way. I've showed you that in spirit means as a father, okay, anywhere, anytime, that's what spirit means. And you'll find out as well in holiness. Next week, we worship him in truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And by the way, we're going to close with the heart of worship. As long as I'm doing this sermon series, probably one more sermon on, on worship, we need to learn, come back to the heart of worship. Acceptable worship to him is with the right motive. The true God, the right way, with the right motive. Let's pray. Lord, as we close with this song, teach us how to worship you acceptably because we know that you are seeking people who will worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.